So let me open us in a little prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much for this night and for a chance to come together and uh, reflect on your word and your call to be the kingdom of God. And we pray that you would speak to us through your scriptures and through one another tonight as we listen to hear what your spirit has to say to the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So just quickly recapping um, where we've been the last couple of weeks. So um, we talked a little bit about our problem. I'm not going to go through this again, but I think maybe we've noticed that we're a divided nation in terms of politics. Maybe you haven't noticed that. I don't know. Maybe live on a rock. Um, we talked about the fact that um, Jesus's context in the first century AD was vastly more divisive than ours. And we talked a little bit of what, what that context looked like in terms of um, the people that wanted to be traditionally Jewish, the people that wanted to embrace the Greco-Roman culture, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Zealots and everybody and, and, and the mess that he lived in. Uh, and then we talked uh, two weeks ago about um, his solution to identity-based politics, which was a kingdom of God worldview. The idea that we root our identity first and foremost in this idea of the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about extensively. That the kingdom of God is not heaven when we die, but a present reality, um, which is everyone who joyfully acknowledges Jesus Christ as king and follows as he leads, right? But that it is not complete. It will not be complete until Jesus returns. Uh, and then last week, we talked a little bit about embracing complexity. And um, we read in Proverbs, we read in John chapter 8, we talked about how Jesus challenges us to look beyond overly simple ideas about issues, about people, about theology, etc. Okay, um, so tonight um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, duopolies and imagination. Okay, I want to start with duopoly. Anybody know what a duopoly is? What's a, a, we don't say it often, very often. Well, everybody knows what a monopoly is, right? Mm -hmm. A monopoly is when you've got one company that controls a single market, right? So a duopoly, you can imagine, is when you have two companies that dominate a single market, right? So we're gonna play a little game to make sure we get this concept. So um, I'm gonna show you an image of one company uh, that's part of a duopoly that dominates a market. And I want you to tell me the other one before I show it to you. All right, ready? This is audience participation. If you're online, you gotta just shout it out, okay, for me to know. So um, there's Coca-Cola and the other is? Pepsi. Pepsi. Pepsi, okay, you guys got it? Now you're on, on board, okay. Um, who's Who's that? Visa. MasterCard and Visa. Yeah. Okay. Great. Everywhere you want to go, right? Discover and uh, American Express, right? Exist, but clearly Visa and MasterCard dominate the market. Seven Up exists. Isn't Seven Up owned by Coca Cola? Actually, I don't even know. Um, Pepsi. I don't know. Somebody owns it anyway. Um, to be a duopoly doesn't mean that you have a hundred percent of the market, right? Just that you dominate the market. Uh, okay, how about, oh, this one, who's gonna, I need my nerds here. Marvel. There's Joel, thank you, Joel. <laughs> Marvel Comics, okay, all right, all right, let me do one more here. Um, um, what's that? That's a Android. Android. And so what's the alternative? Apple. Apple, right, okay, so like 99% of the smartphone market is either Android or Apple, right, okay? So we get the idea. Uh, one more really important one, just to make sure we really grind this into you. Um, so if, if you know two companies that dominate a market, so one company would be the Green Bay Packers, right? And who's the other company? There, there is no other. 
Well, I was going to say the other 31 NFL teams, but sure, there is no other would be also a good answer, right? That's a good answer. Okay. All right. So you get the idea. This is a duopoly, right? Where, where two companies dominate a single market. Mimi's going to be pissed at you. Yeah. People, hopefully there's no Bears fans watching, or if they are, they'll just be crushed. Vikings. What's that? Vikings. Vikings. Yeah. Vikings. That's a Vikings. I've heard of them before. That's like a baseball team. Yeah. No, sorry. Don't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I want to suggest that as we think, and this is actually not original, not my idea in any way, shape, or form, um, but as we think about our, our political landscape, there's another major duopoly, right? And of course, that would be our two political parties, Republicans and Democrats. Um, there's a wonderful podcast by um, a group called Freakonomics, uh, the same authors who wrote the book Freakonomics, called America's Political Duopoly that I really recommend you listen to, um, where they talk about the idea of our two political parties as a business, uh, a $16 billion business, and how um, they function very much like a duopoly, uh, as do Pepsi and Coke, or as do um, Apple and Android, et cetera. Yeah. And so I want to think a little bit about what that means for us uh, and, and sort of define out why I think that's a problem. And then after that, I want to get into a conversation about what we, what we do. So um, uh, if we think about a political duopoly um, uh, rooted in these two political parties, uh, I want to suggest this is a little bit of a problem for us. And I'm going to begin by not just saying why I think it's a problem, um, but why traditionally our, our founding fathers thought it was a problem. So we're going to go all the way back to a guy you may have heard of named George Washington. Um, and in his uh, farewell address, uh, George Washington talked a little bit about um, the two threats that he saw facing the nation. And one of those was foreign entanglements and the other was political parties. And so Washington said, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It always serves to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. Um, so, Washington goes on and on and on about this topic, um, but he sees it as um, fundamentally a, a divisive concern for the nation, right? Um, and, 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 and Greg agrees. Um, John Adams says the same thing, right? Our second president said, there is nothing which I dread so much as a division of the Republic into two great parties, each arranged under its leaders and concerting measures and opposition to each other. Um, so uh, this idea of, of the divisiveness of political parties goes way back, right? Way back. Now, I, I, and I'm not saying they are entirely a bad thing, either was Washington, by the way, but, uh, but a concern, right, that they create this sort of dual, duopoly system. Um, one, of the, one of the things that's really interesting right now in, in our country is if you do any kind of surveys about satisfaction, um, people are wildly unhappy with government, and they pretty much have been for the last 20 plus years. Uh, in fact, um, when you compare government to any um, private sector business or, or, or enterprise, um, government almost always ranks as the, the lowest satisfaction compared to everything else. So think about this for a moment. 
people are happier with their cable TV providers than they are with the government, right? That should give you pause, right? Um, and that's not about any particular government. That's just, that's, that's a, a, that transcends parties, okay? In most business models, when you have low satisfaction um, with what's going on, you get replaced by something else, right? So um, what happens when we all are dissatisfied with cable TV and there's only one cable TV provider in our, in our community is somebody like Netflix comes along, right? And they reinvent what it looks like to do TV. Um, but in our duopoly, there are very high obstacles to new entrants, right? It's really hard for um, new ways of doing politics to get into our political system. Uh, and that's uh, intentional. I think our, our, both parties are completely on board with um, staying as a duopoly, right? Uh, and I think one of the uh, unfortunate effects of our duopoly um, is because it's so secure, um, both parties can kind of ignore the middle ground, right? Because the most effective strategy in a duopoly is just to get your people out to vote. No need to persuade anybody else, just get your people out there, right? Uh, and so the moderate and independent voices in a duopoly aren't, aren't super loud, okay? Uh, so um, a few other concerns. We're, 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 I'm trying to lay out the problem here as I see it. So um, winning in a duopoly is more important than governing, right? So we, we wanna win elections, we don't necessarily wanna solve problems. Um, Compromise is a sign of weakness, right? Because if, you know, if there's only two sides to every issue, if I join with you a little bit, then I must have been wrong or weak or something. Um, and, and because sort of of the nature of our duopoly, um, I think you can make an argument that our core constituency in a duopoly is no longer the people, right? Like I know that half the people are gonna vote for me if I'm a Republican and half people are gonna vote for me if I'm a Democrat. So I don't need to work that hard to serve those people, right? I've already sort of got a built-in system that perpetuates itself. I got a 50% chance of winning. Um, so other voices um, like really partisan voices or special interests or whatever else get a little bit louder because I don't have to work hard to get your votes, right? I've already got my district set up so that, you know, I'm gonna win my district just because it's gerrymandered or whatever. Um, but, but all of that to me um, pales behind the, the biggest problem. The biggest problem for me in this duopoly system is that all issues end up becoming two-sided. All issues in our, in our republic end up becoming two-sided, right? Just there's the Democrat option and the Republican option. Um, and, and I don't believe that most issues have just two sides, right? And, and, and this, the duopoly system we're in sort of forces us or encourages us to think in these very limited ways about um, what uh, options we do have and what the world might look like um, uh, you know the old expression, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail, nail right? Well, if you only got two options, right, every problem starts to look like there's just two options for that problem. Are, are we together? Um, so I, I want to think a little bit tonight about um, what Jesus does instead. Um, and, and I think Jesus um, sort of lives into a biblical tradition into this, but, but Jesus has a really interesting solution to part of our problem of being sort of trapped into this system. So um, with the problem laid out, let's turn to Jesus. And if you've got a Bible, I'd like you to flip to Matthew chapter 22. Um, this is, a, I think, a familiar story. This is Jesus in Jerusalem in the last week of his life as he is being sort of uh, 
the, the political enemies of Jesus, the religious enemies of Jesus are trying to stump him, right? And so they bring him question after question to see if they can stump him and embarrass him before the crowds. And so um, this particular question comes um, with verse 15. We're told that two groups show up, the Pharisees, who are the, um, the religious community of rabbis who believe in the, really Jesus is theologically a Pharisee. They believe in the whole Old Testament. They believe in life after death. They are out of power, right? They're not running the temple. That's the Sadducees. The Pharisees, and then the Herodians come. The Herodians are those people that are um, working for King Herod. Not Herod the Great, he's dead, but Herod Antipas, right? And Herod Antipas II, actually, at this point. Okay, so then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere, and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. They're really laying it on thick here, right? Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he asked, then he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. Okay. Um, Jesus is amazing, but let me give you a little context about this. And I want you to talk with us in groups for a minute, okay? Um, so I, I want to explain a little bit of, of what they're trying to do. I think some of it is pretty obvious. Um, but obviously, we know the Jews are living under Roman rule. Paying Roman taxes is the law, right? And so there's immediately the question of whether you're going to follow the law, law of Rome or not. But you also have to recognize that in the first century AD, the tax burden on the average person in, in, in um, the land of Judea and Galilee was incredible. So they paid taxes to Rome. Um, they paid additional taxes to the local government, usually collected in one way, but extra money came out. They paid a land tax, a poll tax, and an annual head tax to Rome. And so then those taxes get exasperated by local government as well. Then they paid more taxes to the temple. Um, so there are some scholars today that think that the average person in Galilee or Judea was paying 49 to 50% of their annual income in taxes every year. Okay, it's a huge number. So this isn't just a question of whether you're going to support the Roman leaders or not, right? This is, do you understand the crushing burden that the average person is suffering under in this situation? And do you care for them? Or are you gonna do the politically expedient thing and um, support the, the, the powers that be, right? Um, so the, the trap they're putting Jesus in is, is really an interestingly nuanced one, okay? And um, like our sort of duopoly system, right, they are imagining two options, right? Either you pay the tax or you don't. So um, I want to ask you guys to think about two questions, and we're going to put you in small groups briefly to talk about this. Uh, the first one is, uh, I guess I'm, I'm biased. Maybe you don't love Jesus's answer, uh, my question was, what do you love about Jesus' answer? But if you don't, what do you think about Jesus' answer to this question, right? What do you think about his answer? Does it seem like he answers their question well or not? Um, and then I really want you to think about what belongs to Caesar 
and what belongs to God. Okay, so two questions. We're going to just give you a, a maybe, um, Joel, maybe four minutes or so. Is that okay? Um, and we'll ask you, um, what do you think about Jesus' answer to the, the Pharisees and the Herodians? And, and then what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? Those questions make sense? Okay, go get them. So I, I'm, I am curious uh, just to hear a little bit about, um, anybody want to share as you, what you loved about Jesus' answer? What, what stood out to you is, or if you didn't love it, that's okay, what you didn't love about it? Well, he put it back in the hands of the people that want it. Okay, I like that. He put it back in the hands of the people, right? He turned the question around on, uh, on, on the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. that's I great. just felt like this is, it's a very like 90s rap generation thing for me to say, but it's such a gangster answer. It's just like, <laughs> no, I don't have to play by your rules. You're trying to pin me in a black and white world and I'm just not going to play by that. I'm not going to play in that realm. Like it's not where Jesus belongs. So he just doesn't play. I like, yeah. and I like that. I like that too. Yeah, just doesn't play. Yeah. No. And and we get in the text, we get very clear instructions that they are playing, right? That they are they're not seriously asking the question. They're just trying to trap him, right? And so he, yeah, he's he can't be trapped. That's good. Part of Anything the else? go ahead, oh, Ruth. Part of the thing about um, Caesar being on the coin is is the emperors usually thought of themselves or wanted to be honored like a god. Yeah. So I think subtly Jesus is saying. This is Caesar, it's not God. Right. So, I mean, he differentiates between Caesar and God. Oh, and puts... That is fantastic. I love that. Um, that, you know, even saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar and a God what is God's, is saying Caesar is not God, right? And the back of the coin, maybe you guys remember this, but the back of the Roman denarius um, has um, the, it, I'm not going to remember the Latin, but it basically says in English, it says, um, Augustus Caesar, son of the divine, right? Son of the Son of God is, is literally what it says, right? And so here's Jesus saying he ain't the Son of God, right? He's somebody different. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, uh, I want to I play with this what belongs to Caesar, what belongs to God question a little bit. Um, and I want to I ask it in a different way. Um, so uh, what has Caesar's image on it in this story? This is not a trick question. The coin. Okay, great. What has God's image on it in this story? Jesus. Okay, what'd you say? I, Jesus, because he's, he's part of God. Okay, Perhaps. absolutely. So the Bible says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So 100%, yep, I agree. But even more general than Jesus. Okay. Raise your hand if you're made in the image of God. Everybody raise your hand, please. Okay. Um, so the image of Caesar is on a round piece of metal, and the image of God is written on every human face in that circle, right? Isn't that interesting? And as, as he's saying, whose image and name is on this coin, give it to Caesar, isn't the other implication whose image and name is on us? And, and if we are gods, right, then then it, God has uh, not just stuff, right? He has us as well. Um, just kind of an awesome idea for me. Um, I, 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 as I think about this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians, um, I think you can read it in two ways. You can read it one way of saying, 
Jesus is imagining there's one sphere of life that's about the, the politics and the taxes and the practical stuff and give that to Caesar. And the other sphere of life is about God and give that to God. Um, I don't personally think that's what he's saying. I personally think he's saying that you can't separate those two spheres, right? That what belongs to Caesar um, is included in what belongs to God, right? Because everything belongs to God. Uh, and so I can't think about what belongs to Caesar. Um, I can't uh, live in the secular world without my obedience and my devotion to God shining through in some way, right? It should shine through all the time. And in, in the opposite way, I can't have a spiritual life and not have the secular world break through now and then, right? I mean, normal earthly things happen to me every day. And as spiritual as I would like to be, sometimes I have to take the trash out. Right? Sometimes I have to do the laundry, like normal things happen. Um, so I, I think part of what Jesus is saying is that these two things aren't separate, right? They're inter intimately related. Um, one other just thing for me that I think, um, I think Jesus is talking a little bit about the kingdom of God every time he ever talks. And um, Michael Wilkins says that part of what Jesus wants us to understand in this moment is that the kingdom of God will not pose a political or military threat to the established rulers of this world. His kingdom is revolutionary, but until he returns in glory, the kingdom will operate within the existing political order, which is a really interesting idea, right? That um, maybe for the first time, Jesus imagines a kingdom that exists within other kingdoms. Right? Up until this point in time, the idea of a kingdom was, it is distinct from everybody else, right? The, what makes you a kingdom is you have an army and a king and political borders, and if I come and conquer you, your kingdom ceases to exist. And Jesus says, no, I'm imagining a totally different kind of kingdom, a totally different kind of kingdom. So uh, I want to suggest that, that part of the answer um, to the, um, the challenge of our political culture and the duopoly and the, and the, um, the idea of sort of there being two options for every problem um, the response of Jesus is, is imagination, right? It's the divine imagination. Uh, Walter Brueggemann calls it the prophetic imagination. And Brueggemann says, it is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. I really love that idea, right? That part of the work of the prophets in the Old Testament, the work of Jesus in the New Testament, is to say, I know the world is telling you these are your only options. But I'm telling you that if you imagine with God, if you image with God, because you are the image of God, you can come up with wholly different sets of options that you never imagined existed before. You can imagine a kingdom with a king and no army and no political borders, right? That can't be conquered, that can't even be defeated by death. Right? You can imagine all kinds of amazing things. Uh, and that power of imagination in God is exactly how I think um, we overcome. Um, one of the tools we use to overcome some of the, the, the deadlock and gridlock we live in today. Um, so I want to talk a little in, in seriousness about this. Um, but before I get serious about this conversation, um, I'm going to get silly about it. So there's a guy named Ryan George who does these little comedy skits on, online. And... Um, he does all kinds of different stuff. One of those is called, and this is going to sound weird, just stay with me for a minute. Um, this is a sketch that I, I edited out part of called the Human Sacrifice Call Center, okay? 
and, and the, the premise of the skit is um, he's from a cult and he's calling people like you get called by, um, you know, anybody trying to sell you something, but he's asking if people want to sign up to be human sacrifices, right? So it's, it sounds really creepy, but it's actually pretty funny. Uh, and, and he is part of a cult that's following Zordon. Zordon is the, um, one of the villains or heroes or something from the old Power Rangers TV show. Uh, and, and the premise of this bit is that the, the cult of Zordon has like completely taken over, like almost everybody is following Zordon now, okay? Um, but I, what I'm really interested in is the imagination piece. So I'll, I'll play a little clip from um, the Human Sacrifice Call Center. See, we decided that money's not a thing we believe in anymore, so so that's all done. What? Yeah, money's just paper now, we decided. Okay, but no, I don't, you can't just start believing in some things and stop believing in other things. That's not how it, it's, that's not anything. Sure, if you have enough people on board and they all decide that money's not worth anything anymore, then it's not worth anything anymore. It was pretty much just imaginary to begin with. No, Zordon is imaginary. Money is very, very real. It's real paper, yeah, for sure, but you can't use it to buy anything if no one thinks it's worth anything. That is how it works. So I'm just stuck with a bunch of worthless paper. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's worthless. It could have a lot of value to you personally if you like having tiny pictures of old dead politicians with numbers next to their heads. I don't. So then, yeah, no, okay, yeah, no, it is worthless. Wow. This isn't just like a North America thing. Like, I can't move. Oh, well, no, no, we actually stopped believing in that too. You stopped believing in North America? Yeah, just countries in general. It turns out a lot of stuff we thought was important just kind of stops existing when a lot of people stop believing it exists. Well, you can't tell me that Canada doesn't exist. I'm in Canada right now. Do me a favor, put Canada on the phone? What? I can't put Canada on the phone. Canada's like a constant. Oh my, so that's done. Okay, this is a lot. When did this happen? What, what, what day are we? Thursday? So Thursdays are still a thing? Okay. Um, so uh, what I love about this clip is it's ridiculous, right? Um, but, it, but it does kind of touch on the idea of what happens if we imagine in a radical way. So um, those are silly ideas, um, maybe. Um, but let me tell you some dangerous ideas. Um, in the first century AD, there was a pretty clear understanding of who was human. And, and to be human meant that you were um, male and you were an adult and you were free. And if you weren't, then you were something less than human. And then comes this guy, Jesus, and he says, I know in the past it's been normal to take your children and when you didn't want them uh, as infants to leave them outside so they could die from exposure to the cold. But I'm gonna say, let the little children come unto me for such as to them is the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, um, this movement he called the kingdom of heaven started imagining that children were human. Uh, this, Jesus said, uh, yeah, I, I know that in all of our cultures, women are considered significantly less human than men, but I'm going to use women as ambassadors and as missionaries and um, occasionally as apostles, and I'm going to have close female friends and treat them like disciples and not as servants. And all of a sudden, um, in that culture, in that world, women started being more human, right? Just because we imagine differently. Uh, and then this, this guy, um, Paul, comes along, and Paul says, yeah, I know that to be a slave is to be less than human, but in our community, every master has a master, and every slave is actually free in Christ, and so slaves are just as human as, as masters are, right? 
Um, and, and the power of imagination of saying, this is what this looks like from the perspective of the kingdom of God, redefined who was human and who wasn't. Um, the, the question of who does God love was an easy question to answer until the first century AD if you were Jewish, right? If you were of the people of God, you knew without a doubt that God loved Israel. And he had made covenants with Abraham, and he had made covenants with Moses and, and, and the people of God, and he made a covenant with David. But if you wanted to ask who God loves, the answer was Israel. And then this community of people came along following Jesus saying, actually, uh, I think God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not just Israel. And I think actually everybody can come to know God. You don't even have to become a Jew. You don't have to join Israel to be part of the people that God loves, right? Because it was really God's imagination in Jesus Christ, right, who changed that question. Um, how do we achieve life after death? Again, really easy answer. If you believed in that at all in the first century, it was you follow the law, right? You obey the rules. And if you're good, God will reward you. By the way, this is what every other human culture believed and more or less what every other human culture still believes, right? Which is good people are rewarded for doing good things and bad people are punished for doing bad things. And when you get to, to die, if you go to a good place or a bad place based on whether you did good things or bad things. And, and then comes Jesus and Paul and Peter and all these early Christians saying, no, it's going to be about something different. It's going to be about um, whether you are willing to trust in the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. And you can't earn it and you don't deserve it. And he didn't wait for you to be good enough. And while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Um, what things are of ultimate value? Uh, before Jesus, um, people might have said, well, you know, the, the temple is of ultimate value because it connects us to God. And Jesus says, ah, you know, the temple is going to go away, um, but I'm not. Um, people might have said money or property or land. And Jesus says, no, none of those things are, right? Um, ultimate value comes in a relationship with God and each other. And, and you will have that forever. And you are eternal, right? You are immortal. All this other stuff isn't, right? Therefore, it can't be of infinite value. All of that comes just because Jesus asks us to imagine differently, right? That's all that is, right? Is we just started imagining who was human differently, imagining how God loved differently, imagining life after death differently. That's all it is. Um, so uh, I want to suggest that the work of the church is, is to imagine in the lens of the kingdom of God, our world today. And to look at all the stuff that is going on and say, there are more options than we thought there were. Uh, and, and while we are asked to be limited into these little categories, in fact, God says, you have no idea how much I could do if you would just, if you would just come and follow me. So um, I, I, that's the big picture. Let's go back for a minute um, and talk about sort of our, our duopoly and the limited imagination. I think and maybe we've all heard this um, on our own already. I, I think there are a lot of ways that we are asked to say, um, these are your only two options, right? Pay taxes to Rome or don't. Um, so we're told in our world today, you can be pro-environment or pro-business. Pick one, right? There's a pro-environment party and a pro-business party. You can be tough on crime or you can be racially aware, right? Pick one, can't be both. You can be pro-life or you can be pro-choice. You can be concerned about the pandemic or concerned about the economy. And I want to suggest that all those, those limited options are 
fundamentally on some level it's it's a lie we're being asked to believe right that you can't be all those things or both those things you got to pick one right you got to pick sides uh so uh, we don't have time to do them all but just to pick one um i, I cannot imagine that jesus would ever be okay um for a, in a society that pursued racial justice and was overwhelmingly violent to get there and i cannot imagine jesus would be okay in a society that had no violence and massive racial injustice. I gotta believe that Jesus could imagine a way that we could have peace and order and justice and um, no crime and no racism all at the same time. And the idea that those are mutually exclusive things is I think a failure of imagination, right? Uh, and so I think we as Christians are called to come to some of these um, duopoly problems and say, how might Jesus imagine a way out of this, right? Uh, I'm not just saying, you know, what would Jesus do? But I'm kind of saying, what would Jesus do, right? Um, in, in the midst of some of these situations, uh, how would he ask us to navigate and not just fall into the trap of saying, well, it's, I've got to pick one or the other. So um, I want to ask you to do a little bit of this tonight. Um, I want to ask you to, to um, imagine with Jesus. How are we doing? We're doing great. Um, so uh, I, I've already said that. That's fine. Um, I want to ask you, um, I think this is a really good Christian question. Uh, I don't know who I stole this from, but I'm sure I stole it from someone. Um, what's the most beautiful story you can imagine about X through a kingdom of God worldview? Right? And you could put anything in that X, right? What's the most beautiful story you can imagine about um, race and justice in America through a kingdom of God worldview? What's the most beautiful story you can imagine about abortion in America through a kingdom of God worldview? What's the most beautiful story you can imagine about um, the environment and business in America through a kingdom of God worldview, right? I really like this question a lot. Here's what I like about it. Um, I, I like that it asks us to be positive and not negative. I like that it's not a complaining or accusing question. I'm not saying, what is everyone else doing wrong? I'm not saying, um, what do, the, what do the other guys think and why do you think they're wrong? I'm saying, just imagine for a minute, what's the best story you could tell? Right? If, you were, if you were talking about any of these topics that matter to you um, and you weren't hindered by sort of a political duopoly, what's the best story you could tell about any of these topics? Right? And, and maybe that's a place we begin as followers of Jesus and saying, now again, through a kingdom of God worldview, so I'm not just saying what would make Jim Gates happy. That's not the goal, right? It's, it's as I think about this adventure, this calling of Jesus Christ, who he was and how he calls us to live and love God and love each other and follow him. How might that shape a story around this topic? Okay. So I'm going to ask you to do this in groups tonight. Um, and and um, since we were in Matthew 22, we're going to go, we're going to go back to that same passage. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to, to talk about two things in your groups. Uh, the first one is, um, since Jesus is talking about taxes, what is the most beautiful story you can imagine about taxes through a kingdom of God worldview? Um, so whatever that is, right? Just, you know, what's the most beautiful story you could tell about how taxes could be used in the kingdom of God um, uh, or through a kingdom of God worldview in a good way? Um, and then um, what's the most beautiful story you can imagine about everyone giving to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. What, what might that look like, right? Tell me the best story you can tell about, geez, I think if that happened, it would be like this. Does that kind of make sense? Those are your two questions. So 
the best story you can tell about taxes through a kingdom of God worldview, um, and the best story you can tell about everyone giving to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. To hear um, how your conversations went, I really enjoyed overhearing some of y'all's talks in this room. Um, and, and the first thing I ever heard was um, somebody saying, I can't imagine any good stories you can tell about taxes. Um, <laughs> but then you guys had great conversations. So somebody share a little bit about um, what stood out to you about um, you know, a beautiful story about taxes through a kingdom of God worldview. Go ahead, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that we we all, which again, which is like so the point of this conversation is is that I'm not sure of if everyone in my group would um, like. Which I don't even know what political party any of us would affiliate with, and it doesn't matter because we all agreed that in a in our imagination we would have enough for ourselves and then whatever, like for our own family, our security, our, our, our sustenance for our family. And then what is excessive after that, we want to share. We would want that to go to those who need it. And it was pretty, that, that was actually our, I think collective sort of beautiful story was that we think that's what God would want for us and for others. And then if we were not doing well, in our own families that then there would be, it would be available to us, that that would be available to us. That's awesome. That's great. I love that story. Very cool. Good story. Uh, it reminds me a little bit, um, I'm not gonna comment everybody talks, but um, there are a number of, and I'm, I'm, this is in no way an advocacy of this idea, but I know a number of places where um, Christians have come together to do healthcare in that way, right? Mm -hmm. They all sort of contribute money to a pool and then they give that money out as someone in the community says, I need, I need help. Um, a lot of communities do that. Yeah. So just anyway, that's a cool, that's a cool idea. Okay. Great. Other stories that you wanted to tell about taxes. I heard some of your stories in here. I'm going to tell them if you don't. Joanne, you want to share the, the model in Germany? We, we were talking about another country. Okay. Let's hear. They, they do pay a higher rate of tax, but um, they also, the tax goes for more of the welfare of the general population, for example. And I overheard a conversation about somebody went back to Sweden to have their baby because they get a, a year's paid time off to take care of the baby and develop a bond. Um, I believe it's the same in Germany and, and many other countries when the students that I had hosted go back before they can find a job, the government pays them a living wage until they find employment. Um, and then of course, they get free education beyond um, their secondary schooling. They can go on to college and it doesn't, their state university is free for higher education. It's something some examples of where the tax money goes. Interesting. Thanks, Trent. Very interesting. Others? Lois, I'm going to share yours. Um, so I, um, I, Lois was talking to her group and she said, you know, if we felt like the, the money was going to great causes, if we felt like it was godly things, whether it was, you know, building roads or what, what I mean, whatever it might be, um, 
if we felt like it was going to something that was of God, then it might feel like we were giving to God when we gave that money. Um, that it would be sort of an act of faith almost to say, hey, I trust this is going the right place and therefore I'm happy to do it. Um, and kind of along those lines, I heard Brett say, um, you know, this maybe is kind of what you guys talked about, Rachel, but Brett said, what if we didn't pay taxes um, in, in, a, in a perfect world? What if we simply said, hey, there's a, a recognized need and we all choose rather than, rather than it being a drafting that's being taken from me, right, which is what the government does. What if it was like what the church does, where we say, hey, I love this thing that's happening and I'm going to support it. So I know that road is really important. So I'm happy to give for the road. And I know that school is really important. So I'm happy to give for the school and it wouldn't be taken from me. I would, I would give it volitionally. That, that was a cool idea. I thought too. Yeah. Herb. How can we apply Acts 3 and the, towards the end of that chapter where everybody took and brought their stuff and they distributed it? So, How long did that work? So fantastic. So Herb's talking about, um, there are actually a couple of places in the book of Acts where we get uh, the description of, of what the early Christian community looked like. And they kind of did this, right? I mean, there are some challenges with it, but they kind of did this where they said, hey, we're going to take what we have. We're going to lay it at the apostles' feet and let them distribute it as anyone has need. So they literally would like sell their house, sell their field, bring that money to the apostles. And the apostles yeah. would say, okay, well, these people need food. They don't have any money. So let's give them some money now that we, it, it was a, it was a communal owning sort of thing. Now, um, I have mentioned in the past, they hit some road bumps, right? Where they, when they ran out of money, because nobody was working and making more money. And then they had to get money from other churches. But the idea of, of saying, hey, what's mine is yours and what yours is mine is kind of a beautiful one, I thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I really liked, I know I'm pushing my time here. I really liked um, what Rachel said. I just want to repeat it, um, that in her group, she didn't know what anybody's political affiliation was, um, but they could dream together in this way and have a common dream. And <clears throat> we've talked before that I think one of, the, one of the key values for me is to recognize that while I may share uh, well, we may have different ideas of how we achieve goals. A lot of the goals we want to achieve are the same. Um, and even if I disagree with someone on how to achieve a goal, I can respect them a lot more when I realize we, we are striving for a similar goal, right? Does that kind of make sense? Uh, and so I, I really love that that kind of came up naturally in y'all's conversation. Um, I know we don't have time for this, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Did anybody want to share about the most beautiful story they could imagine about everyone giving to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's? That's a hard one. No, taxes was pretty hard too, in fairness. I don't ask easy questions. I almost felt like it was a combination of one question and two parts. Ah, okay, great. You felt like it was actually a similar question in just different parts. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Jim, I had, um, like, I couldn't answer the question. I had, all my brain could do was go back in history to other civilizations that have sort of tried to build a, a human-based legal thing based on a god, and it never goes well. So it gets really icky. And so um, just human rights violations and just, just awful stuff. So then I got stumped because I don't know where to go. I mean, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. So sorry, I don't have an answer. Well, 
maybe recognizing that it's a hard question is a good thing. Um, I, I love that Jesus says this and then, and then doesn't follow up, right? It would, be, it would be easier on me if Jesus said, this is what it should be like, and let me tell you how to get there. Here's step one, here's step two, here's step three. He doesn't do that, right? And as we talked about last time, part of that is because of the incarnation, it's a, it's a two-way thing, right? I mean, yes, God became human, um, but then the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, right? And, and we are um, these mini Christs or Christians, and we have the responsibility to sort of fill out. Um, Paul, Paul says, he's got a really weird line in one of his books where Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Um, and so weird, how can there be anything lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church? And, and I think Paul's point is, um, I carry on for Jesus, right? I, I carry on for Jesus. And, and if he had done everything for us, there'd be nothing for us to carry on with. And so I, I love that he leaves us the work of the prophetic imagination, right? He leaves us the work of imagining what this world might look like. And if you notice, every time Jesus teaches, when he talks about the kingdom of God, it's almost always in parables, right? Kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, kingdom of God is like. He never says, do this to make it happen, right? He says, kingdom of God is like, now come follow me. And so I think that's part of the work of being a Christian is to figure out what the kingdom of God is like and then try to follow Jesus into it. And it's not supposed to be easy. Um, but we, we, it's got to begin with this idea of, I got to imagine the world that Jesus wants me to imagine. Yeah, Herb. One other application of the duopoly that we haven't touched on, and that is our world and our hearts. And there's a duopoly there. Yeah. We make the choice if we want Satan to be on the throne or if we want Christ to be on the throne. And that's a choice we make every day. Yeah. Uh, Herb's point was um, there's, a, there's a spiritual duopoly between Satan and Jesus, right? And we choose every day who we want to be on the throne. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's a duopoly that I can embrace, right? Because <laughs> that's not what I want to fight off. I want to say, yeah, there's, those really are the two options. Um, I, I'd like to imagine that there are others, but there's not. Anything that's not Jesus is Satan that goes on my throne, right? Or is pointing me away from Jesus at least. Yeah. Um, okay, so I know we're out of time. Um, uh, every, night, every week, I, I promise I would end with this question, right? Is this terribly naive? Um, and I recognize that expressing a willingness to imagine options beyond those encouraged or imposed by our duopoly is not going to like be a magic spell to fix our country, right? Um, but I really do believe it can change our conversations. Um, and, and if it hasn't been yet made clear, I think part of the way that we overcome this division is we change our conversations. We learn to talk to each other better. Uh, and so I think this is another one of Jesus's tools, another arrow in our quiver to figure out how we uh, become a, a bridge building people, right? Uh, okay, I, uh, thanks so much. I know we're late and out of time. Let me just close with a little prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for sending your son Jesus to earth. Thank you so much for his call to, to live differently and to imagine differently. Thank you so much for the radical idea he gives us of this kingdom of God that exists now and, and exists eternally and that doesn't have borders and that doesn't have uh, national boundaries. Um, thank you so much for allowing us to imagine with Jesus that we can be part of that kingdom eternally with you 
not because we're good people, but because we have a good Savior. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to imagine with you, to imagine what this world might look like. If we gave to the world what properly belonged to the world, and we gave to you what properly belongs to you. And we thank you that you have made us as your image bearers. And we pray that we would go forth uh, and image you well and imagine well with you. Jesus, we love you. Uh, we know that you are the image of the invisible God. And we pray that your eyes would be fixed on you this week. In your holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.